We look forward in a moment again to hearing from Flavien uh, on a slightly different aspect of the subject, looking more at hermeneutics and how uh, what we've learned from Melchizedek uh, helps us in seeking to understand the scripture, a strategy approach for understanding the scriptures. And he's asked me to read a couple of passages from the New Testament. The first is 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 10. 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 10. So Paul writes to Timothy and he says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And then turning back to Luke's Gospel, a few verses from the end of the Gospel according to Luke, Luke chapter 24, from verse 44. Jesus speaking to the disciples, of course. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Let's join together in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, our God, our Heavenly Father, we again come to you through your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. How we thank you for your word. We've seen this morning something of its riches, 
things that perhaps we've not really focused on or seen clearly before. And there is so much there. We know there is more there than we could possibly exhaust in a lifetime or a hundred lifetimes of study. And so we thank you for this word and we thank you too that it is so clear that even without huge amounts of study we can, we can see its message, we can understand what you are saying to us. So help us this afternoon, deepen our understanding, we pray of how we are to approach your word, help our speaker as he brings this subject and opens it before us, help us in discussion and debate that we would uh, profit from this, benefit from it, and that you would be glorified. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for coming back. I hope that uh, you enjoy your meal. Um, and uh, I'm sorry you cannot enjoy your nap. <laughs> this afternoon, um, we'll continue our uh, Reflections based on Melchizedek. So this morning I tried to um, give you a bit of a, uh, an experience or a sense of how we can engage with the scriptures as they present the, the person of Melchizedek in the Old Testament in particular. We, originally I had planned to look at what Hebrews does with him, but um, because of a, a little uh, issue with time limits, um, we had to, uh, to stop a bit earlier than expected. Uh, though, as I said, um, in some ways, it was fitting because, as I said at the beginning of my talk, I was going to try to limit myself to Melchizedek himself and what Scripture says about Melchizedek himself. And uh, Hebrews doesn't speak of Melchizedek. It only speaks about Christ through the lens of Melchizedek or how Melchizedek helps us understand the priesthood of Christ and the work he has accomplished as high priest in uh, his sufferings and his death. So at some level, it was fitting that... Uh, we would, have, uh, we would not speak about Hebrews too much uh, this morning. Um, so this afternoon, uh, the, the topic that uh, we have before us is Melchizedek, a hermeneutical manifesto. Um, so we're going to look a bit at some of the hermeneutical lessons that we can learn from Scripture in general, uh, Hebrews uh, in, in particular. Um, uh, since I do not know you, and I don't know where you're coming from. Uh, it's hard for me to predict how, uh, what, I, what I will say, uh, how familiar it would be or how strange sounding or shocking or anything. So um, I'll say what I have to say and you'll get a chance to, um, to, uh, to tell me what you think about it. Um, I suspect that some of what I'll say might be a bit controversial for some, some of us. Uh, some of it might be obvious uh, for others or for, or for the same people. Um, but um, I've discovered in my ministry that it's always good to state the obvious, um, that often what we think is obvious actually isn't, or that it deserves to be repeated and uh, we need to be reminded of the obvious. So my starting point uh, for, this, uh, for our reflections this afternoon uh, comes from um, what we've just heard, uh, the text in uh, Luke 24 and uh, 2 Timothy, um, but also the text. And uh, my starting point is that... Uh, the New Testament scriptures, Hebrews and the rest of the New Testament, make clear that uh, the Old Testament was written for our sake. Now, that may sound like an obvious thing. You think, yeah, of course, as Christians, we, it's our Old Testament. It's our own scriptures. Um, 
and that's true. Uh, but I'm saying a bit more than that. Uh, in First Peter, um, uh, I'll give you the exact reference. In First Peter one verses ten through twelve, uh, in First Corinthians nine verses nine through ten and uh, ten verse six, all make clear that uh, the scriptures of the Old Testament really were written for us Christians. That ultimately, their meaning, their full meaning, is accessible and available only to us. That though those scriptures were obviously of great use to the believers of the Old Testament, and they were used by God to work among his people in the Old Testament, even from then, from the very moment they were revealed, the ultimate purpose or the ultimate goal, their full purpose, was for us Christians. There is, therefore, a, a, a uniquely and properly Christian way to read, study, understand, appropriate all the scriptures, Old and New Testament included, and one that is defined, that is framed, that is exemplified by the scriptures themselves. And that's what we see uh, in, 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 uh, in the case of our study uh, in Hebrews. My first section will, will be uh, more of a negative type of section. Um, as I said, I do not know where you're coming from, so... Uh, again, what, I may, what I'm going to say now might be obvious or might be shocking. I just don't know. Um, but uh, I will, my first section will be a critique of the grammatical historical method. Now, my own background, um, I grew up in an evangelical uh, context in France. Um, if, if someone, a pastor or a teacher, were to identify themselves as evangelicals and explain how they read the scriptures. They would use that expression um, using a grammatical historical reading of scripture. But that's what they meant is, uh, I believe the Bible is God's word. Of, is God's word. It is a revelation. But it is a revelation of things that actually happen in history. And for us, uh, what, what is there for us is what happened in history and what is said in the Bible. The grammatical side is the language. If the Bible says it, it happened, then that's what I need to know. However, and I hope um, I've, I've um, if not demonstrated, at least exemplified this this morning, um, if we were to use a strictly grammatical historical method uh, to study the person of uh, Melchizedek, we would have to seriously question uh, um, Psalm 110, but especially Hebrews. Based on the grammatical historical method, we basically do not know anything about Melchizedek, or very little. We just know that some king of the ancient Near East at some point encountered Abraham, the father of the nation, and that this person uh, was not only a king, but was a priest, and he had dealings with Abraham, and they seemed to like each other and respect each other. Beyond that, there would be nothing. Now, even granting special revelation and saying, like, that David was directly inspired by the, by the Spirit when he wrote Psalm 10, 110, and that God put in his mouth those, those words, we would still be at a loss to understand how they connect with the historical figure of Melchizedek. 
direct revelation, recognizing supernatural revelation, is not denying historical reality. It's just including the supernatural in history in a way that critical methods deny. So that's, that's the big difference between the grammatical historical method and the uh, historical critical method. Uh, the grammatical historical considers that supernatural revelation is possible and is part of history. Uh, the, uh, critical, the historical critical method denies the possibility of supernatural revelation. But essentially or fundamentally, both of them consider that what is true and what is therefore meaningful, significant and valuable is what happened. Trying to reconstruct the events, what actually happened and how we can understand them especially in connection with the world as we know it and the history of this world as we know it. And uh, you'll see in some uh, great evangelical scholars a strong, strong concern over connecting events in the Bible or characters in the Bible with archaeology or what happened in history. One of my... Um, um, one of the uh, evangelical scholars who has, uh, who has been very significant for me is uh, F.F. Bruce, great scholar, a great, um, great student of the Book of Acts. But uh, when you read his writings on the Book of Acts, outside of what happened in history and rhetorical issues that would be connected to language, there is not that much in his commentaries. When it comes to theology, narrative, artistry, all those kind of things, there isn't that much. Now, part of it is context. He was writing a bit as an apologist in the British Academy, and was trying to convince his unbelieving colleagues or opponents of the truth of Christianity. So part of it was he limited himself to aspects that they would consider uh, acceptable. However, uh, when you read one of his commentaries on the book of Acts, it doesn't feed your soul that much spiritually. It's helpful, it's useful in many ways, but it's not spiritually very nourishing. So uh, based on that method... Uh, Psalm 110, Genesis 14, would be, would be uh, uh, intriguing texts. They would be obscure, puzzling, curious, um, but they wouldn't really help us much with either our theology, with our faith, with our life, or our ministry as Christians. Now, one of the side effects of that is when uh, we limit our interpretation of Scripture and uh, the possible meaning that scripture can have to the historical and the grammatical dimensions, what happens in the end is because we have so little to live on, we usually have to leap into either an allegorical interpretation to try to draw some theology out of it, or uh, we fall, or uh, it's not sorry, or it can be end, uh, we fall into some kind of moralistic reading of the events where we try to identify ourselves with particular characters and say, well, do like David, don't do like so-and-so. But because the, 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 the events and the words of Scripture are limited to those categories, they are not able to communicate to us at, that, at the level of our spiritual needs. And therefore, we kind of have to bridge that somehow. And because we cannot bridge it with our own interpretation of Scripture, we have to kind of bring it from a different angle. That probably explains why some books of the Bible are not preached on very often. And I assume, uh, I, I won't do the test now, but I assume there are a number of books 
of scriptures that you, you probably have never heard a sermon on and most likely have never preached on either. Um, a, a test I often do with my students. That doesn't work in my Bible. It's brand new. Um, but I usually ask them to look at the side of the Bible. And usually it looks like a zebra. So you can tell which books they've been reading and which books they haven't. But part of it is because of that method. Because we've taught them that the only assured meaning of Scripture is what is historically factual, an event that we can describe, and direct, explicit words of Scripture. And so many books are a puzzle, and much of the Bible remains sterile for them, spiritually. Now, in the case of Melchizedek, that probably explains why a number of critical scholars have uh, suggested that the Melchizedek incident or event or uh, a a story is actually a foreign body in the story. Because they can't make head or tails of it. And because it seems to be interfering so much with the flow of the narrative, it must be an intrusion. It must be something that has been added at some point, either by, well, they don't really believe in an original author anyway, but uh, by some editor sometime down the line, somebody just found that story and thought it would be cool to have it there in the middle. But it really doesn't work. And they don't see any loss in it because it's a useless piece of information. Now, why is it this way? It's because that method, the grammatical historical method, is reductionistic in nature. It limits itself to a very narrow scope of potential meaning and information. And therefore, because it does that, because it reduces the potential meaning of scripture, the meaning of a text, it tends to be abstract. It's isolating those aspects from the organic fullness of the text. And therefore, by making it abstract, which is ironic, because really the point of it is to make it as concrete and factual as possible. But by doing that, you end up creating an imaginary meaning, really, because the real world is not like that. Um, So they tend, therefore, to be abstract, and in the end requires a certain level of allegory, or whatever you want to call it, metaphor or anything else, to be able to find theology uh, in the Scriptures. It, can, it cannot be part of Scripture. It cannot be the teaching of Scripture. It has to be something you built from Scripture. And in the same way, for practical reasons, for our needs in our Christian life or for our ministries, we're kind of left with a form of exemplarism from what has happened. The experience of the uh, people mentioned in Scripture becomes a model for our own experience or the experience of our people. And the level at which we connect with those uh, people and and events is at the level of common faith experience or common, to take an even broader term, a common religious or moral experience. It's existential. We connect with them as human beings. So, in in that sense, uh, the grammatical historical method is and you'll forgive me for saying it this way, but it's a tame form of the historical critical method. Moral is the same thing in terms of its basic standards, its basic methods, its basic criteria, its basic concerns, with a a big difference being uh, accepting the possibility of supernatural revelation and therefore a hermeneutic that is less suspicious, less critical in that sense. 
we are willing to believe that miracles can happen when the typical historical critical scholar denies that possibility. But we agree with them that uh, when, we use it, when we adopt that kind of method, we agree with the critical scholars that what matters is what actually happened. In other words, a reconstruction of the historical events. And therefore, what matters is not the text itself, but is what the text speaks about. What is behind the text. That's why critical scholarship is so concerned over sources and uh, cultural background and historical background and so on, because what matters is not the text as we have it. What matters is what it points to, what is behind, and in, at some level, that's why we have to be critical, what it hides. We all know that the victor writes history. So if we want to know history, we want to deconstruct his perspective so we can have access to, the, to what really happened. Not what he wants me to believe happened, but what actually happened. And in the case of people of faith, we know that they are naive. And, uh, and, and so if we want to know what really happened, we have to demythologize what they're saying. That's why you have people who claim to be Christians who are teaching the Bible in uh, respected schools uh, who so self-define themselves as Christians, but uh, are willing to say, you know, yeah, the miracles of Jesus, uh, it's cute stories. Really what matters is the moral teaching of Jesus or something else, his example. Um, now, ironically, part of, part of the, this, this kind of problem, this kind of approach is typical of apologetical intentions. Uh, very often in apologetics, um, people adopt the standards of the opponent to try to make their argument. The notion going, if I want to convince you, I have to use arguments that make sense to you. So I will adopt your standards of what is true, your methods, and I'll try to use those tools against you. And what happens is eventually you adopt the worldview of your opponent and do the same thing. That's the history of the church is littered with people falling into that trap. And that's, I believe that's what happened with the grammatical historical method. It was an attempt by evangelicals to defend the Bible, to defend the Christian faith, and uh, by adopting uh, the uh, basically the epistemology of their opponents, tweaking it a bit, but keeping the main of it. The fact is, um, there are lots of presuppositions involved with hermeneutics, with interpretation. Whether we like it or not, we all work with a, a huge set of presuppositions. A number of them, some of them, depends on who we are talking to, uh, we are aware of, and a number of them we're not. Depends a bit on whether we've been to, we went to seminary and had to think about the process um, and how we're wired. Some people are more wired to think about how they do things than others. But uh, we all function we all read texts, including the Bible, through a grid of interpretation, which depends on a certain set of presuppositions about lots of things. Fundamentally, the nature of God, the nature of his interaction with the world, the nature of man and of our ability to know, and uh, uh, um, how God can communicate with us and how we can know God and all those things. But, so ultimately, it's, it's about how God is involved in the world and reveals himself in the world to his creature. So we, we cannot escape presuppositions. So let's not pretend we can. Let's not try to. The worst mistake we can do in interpretation is, is to read just the text. 
Because when we do that, we let our un- unconscious or subconscious presuppositions control the way we read things. It's not that we got rid of presuppositions. We're just using some that we're not aware of. It's a lot better to be self-conscious about our presuppositions because this way we can actually test them to see if they actually do match the object of our study, if they actually work, if they actually allow us to understand it better and in a way that is consistent with its full teaching. You know, as Protestants, we strongly believe in uh, the sola scriptura. But uh, one aspect that we've often forgotten about it is that for the reformers, that always came with the tota scriptura. It's not just scripture alone, but it's all of scripture. If we want to have a proper understanding of the Bible, we must understand the Bible as a whole. We cannot just pick some parts and hope we can understand the whole this way. We have to understand it all together. And so, uh, in the same way, um, as we we test our interpretation, if we test it with the whole of Scripture, we actually can see whether our presuppositions are consistent with the Bible or not. If we don't do that, uh, we will just adopt the standards and practices and uh, expectations of our culture, our education, our family, and, and, and things like that. But we will not be aware of that. And so we will not be able to check. Now, the next step in my argument is that, um, okay, we have to develop our own presuppositions. We have to develop our own epistemology. We have to develop our own methods of reading scripture. How do we do that, especially as Christians? Well, um, to put it simply, maybe, is that either scripture is our model for reading scripture, or we are left to our own devices. Either scripture teaches us how to, read it, uh, how to read it, how to understand it, or we have to make it up. And that means we have to build our interpretation on extra-biblical, which in my perspective means anti-biblical, principles. Anti, not by the fact that it's all opposing the Bible, but by being extra, it's, it's, it's a different system of thoughts. It's a different uh, um, worldview that we would be bringing to, to, the, to the table. We often hear that uh, when, we, when, we, when we face texts that are a bit difficult, and interpretations of the Old Testament are difficult in the New Testament, like Paul speaking of uh, Sarah and Hagar, or the rock was Christ. Um, I mean, we're all puzzled by those texts, let's put it. Let's be honest. Uh, it, it's somewhat puzzling. There's some, some, it's challenging our typical understanding of how we should read Scripture. And we don't want to encourage our, uh, the members of our churches to just start reading the Bible exactly like that. And we're a bit un- 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 uncomfortable with it. Um, so often what we say is that, um, well, the apostles um, uh, had a unique position in the history of redemption and the history of revelation, which is absolutely true. Um, and, uh, and because they were uh, um, inspired by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, in a way that we are not, they could do things with the text that we cannot. So when Paul says things like I've just said, we say, well, he had direct revelation from God, he could do that, but there's no way we could do anything of this kind. Case dropped. Well, I have a problem with this in a number of ways. Um, Because if we cannot imitate the apostles in the way they read the Old Testament and extend that to the New Testament, if we cannot, then how are we to learn? How can we know how to read Scripture? 
Again, are we left to our own devices? Are we left to ask our culture how we should read the text? Is the Bible really its own interpreter, as we claim? I mean, most of us are from, a, I assume, are from a tradition, whether Westminster or um, the uh, uh, Baptist uh, Confession of 1689. Or what, I'm sure you're from a tradition that recognizes that at some level the Bible explains itself, however you put it in your own statements. Um, if it isn't, and if, it, if we cannot learn from it, then again, we're left to our own devices. We have to imagine to invent a system. And that goes, that runs against what the Bible says. Um, like Paul speaking to Timothy. Paul insists not only that Timothy has learned the scriptures in his youth, but also that he's seen how Paul himself handles the scripture. And he's to reproduce that. When Jesus promises the Spirit to his disciples, and that he promises to them that the Spirit would guide them in the truth, though he's clearly addressing his disciples uh, immediately, and, and that has to do with their unique function as apostles, uh, we all understand that there's a level at which we all inherit, benefit from the same spirit, and that the same spirit of truth will lead us also in the truth. That the spirit who has inspired the words of this book will inspire our reading of those words. If there's no spirit to lead us in, in reading the scriptures, we are hopeless. We know that without the work of the spirit, the illumination, the regeneration, the guidance of the spirit, our sinful hearts will just corrupt God's truth and we don't have access to his words. So if, if he's at work in us and he's the one enabling us to read the Bible, he will also help us know how to read it. So we should expect continuity between the apostles and ourselves. Now, I, I don't have the time to, to build a long argument about that, but there's a level at which we are uh, in the same situation as the apostles in terms of the stage or the era or the epoch of redemptive history. We are at the end like them, we are in the last days. Like Hebrews says, you know, in the past, God has revealed himself in many ways and in different manners through many prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in a son. He's, it's a very short, compressed expression. But uh, he's not saying that the, the people he's writing to actually heard the son with their own ears. What he's saying is God's revelation was mediated to us through the son and indirectly or immediately, through the apostles themselves. So there is a continuity between, between them and us. Uh, like them, we are in a position in redemptive history where we can look back, read the whole story of the Old Testament through the lens of its fulfillment in Christ. And that's what they are doing in the New Testament. That's what Hebrews is doing. It's reading Psalm 110 and through it uh, Genesis 14 in the light of what uh, the author knows of Jesus. So we should expect the Spirit and we should learn from the apostles, recognizing that there is a unique role and unique position to the apostles. I'm not denying that at all. But their, their position is that of a foundation. And the, the very purpose of a foundation is that you build upon it. You don't build a foundation just to look at it and say, oh, it's wonderful. We have a foundation. No, you build a foundation so you can build something on it. And that's our role to keep, to continue the work of the apostles in their interpretation of the scriptures. In continuity with them, with their example, with their model, with the, the plan, the map they've given us. If it were not the case, the scriptures would not be sufficient. Second Timothy would be a lie. 
if the scriptures are there to equip us for all good works and for the work of ministry, it's because they also teach us how to read the scriptures. Because if they didn't do that, we could all go home. Uh, especially here, as I'm addressing primarily pastors, we all know that the heart of our ministry, the, the one tool and weapon that, the, that, that God has given us for our ministry is the Word of God. If the Word doesn't teach us how to wield that weapon, we're hopeless. We're like builders with no tools. So if, if Scripture is to be sufficient for our salvation, it also must be sufficient to teach us how to study the Word. And not just study it, but understand it, appropriate it, apply it, practice uh, Christian life and, in Christian life and ministry. Just as, as an aside, note that most of the New Testament writers, or let's say the writers who wrote most of the New Testament, were not apostles themselves. Whatever you think of Hebrews, we'll leave Hebrews to the side. Um, Luke was not an apostle, and he wrote almost a third of the New Testament. James was not. Jude wasn't. Some of the gospel writers, uh, besides, besides Luke, um, uh, Mark is not an apostle either. So, where did they learn to read the Bible? At the apostles' feet. So, today I want to strongly encourage us to take our cues from Hebrews, the way Hebrews reads the Old Testament, but also how the Old Testament reads itself. Like, Psalm 110 uh, interacts with, uh, um, with Genesis 14. There's a lot that could be said. It's, it's, um, there's a lot of things we could look at, how the scripture is an organism and how different parts uh, explain each other, even when they're not historically related. Um, um, but for, for today, I will, I will limit myself to uh, some of the uh, lessons that we can learn. Uh, from, from Scripture in the text we've, we've looked at this morning and uh, Hebrews that we have uh, read but not studied. Um, the author of Hebrews um, in chapter 7 uh, reads Psalm 110 in the light of Genesis 14. And I think it's important to remember this. It's not that he reads Genesis 14 in the light of Psalm 110, but he's doing the other way around. Um, so he's taking the later text and he's trying to understand that later text from the earlier texts, from the earlier events. Um, and so he draws his argument for the epistle, his teaching, and his exhortation from that, if you like, confrontation of texts. And um, he's drawing uh, his teaching and exhortation from a variety of aspects or dimensions of the, the, the text of the scriptures. Yes, Historical, as, as I said earlier, he's, uh, the elements he's drawing out of Genesis 14 are all factual historical events or, or dimensions. He treats uh, Melchizedek as a fully and thoroughly historical human person. He doesn't um, take off into allegorical um, or speculative interpretations of Melchizedek that are common in his time, uh, whether uh, in, in Philo or in some of the Qumran texts or uh, some of the in Josephus or in some later uh, rabbinical texts um, he, Melchizedek triggered all kinds of weird speculations all kinds of ideas and interpretations but our author is, anchors everything in what the text says and what happened he treats it as something that actually happened 
the way it is, the way it is told. But also he's drawing theological elements. He's, he's drawing on canonical, the fact that he's, called, he's using two different texts of the Old Testament to uh, interpret one another. He's uh, looking at the systematic and organic nature of Scripture, how it all functions together. The, the, the message of Scripture is not found in one verse or one chapter or one section. It's found in all of Scripture together. Um, he's looking at the literary dimension of Scripture. He's, he's, he's looking at the way the story is, is told in uh, Genesis 14, for example. Literary dimensions. He's look, so there, there's an, uh, an intertextual, literary, linguistic, uh, narrative dimension to how he reads the text. Uh, but more than that, he's using this text to frame uh, uh, um, the uh, identity and the thinking of the people he's writing to. He's, he's not writing just to give them a nice treatise in biblical theology or in hermeneutics. He's actually dealing with urgent pastoral issues. Extremely serious. I mean, he's talking about potentially uh, falling into apostasy. He's urging them with very strong terms. And the way he's uh, he's going to those texts is to, is to be able to strengthen those believers in their faith, uh, rebuke them, encourage them, but also help them understand their own experience, help them understand their world, who they are as Christians in the already and not yet. And how to deal with suffering and persecution. And how to continue in perseverance and endure till the end. And how Christ and who Christ is can help them do that. So he's, he's looking at many different aspects of the text, but also many different aspects of what a text can do for us. I strongly believe that the nature of Scripture must define how and for what purpose we read it. That's a bit of a self-evident thing. Every scientific method is supposed to be... Uh, um, uh, to fit with the object of study. You don't study a rock the same way you study a pack of lions or stars. The object of study, in many ways, defines the method used. But in our case, it's more than that, because the object of our study is addressing us as a subject. It's God speaking to us. It's not a rock or a dead body that we can dissect. It is the living God, the creator of the world, speaking to us. And therefore, he's telling us what we must hear, the way he wants us to hear it. So, let's look at some of the dimensions of scriptural meaning. By dimensions, you see, I, I mean that there are not several meanings, but the meaning of the Bible uh, has a richness to it. There's a diversity of dimensions, of aspects, of perspectives, if you want. There are different ways you different words you can use, facets. The point is to say there's only one meaning, not many meanings, but that meaning is rich and diverse. And because the world is the way it is, because man is the way we are, um, the word is addressing us in all our different dimensions also, and our needs. So our survey, obviously, cannot be exhaustive. We cannot survey everything and every aspect. We can look at all the aspects, the contributions of each, um, uh, and the, the whole hermeneutical system. Here, we'll have to content ourselves with some suggestive foray into what I would consider a fascinating and stimulating forest. Uh, realizing that we cannot pay attention to every tree in that forest, 
or that we can have a full map of the entire forest. Uh, so we'll take samples, I guess. Um, as I said this morning, I hold entirely to the Westminster Standards. Um, I believe that the Bible is 100% divine and 100% human at the same time, um, which in itself is quite an, in, interesting for how we should read it. That's creating a good number of interesting questions on how, to, how we connect the two, but also how, text, how we can read the text as God's word and man's word. Um, as you probably know, a lot of people think that the meaning of Scripture is the authorial meaning, the authorial intent. Uh, and there's a lot of debate about that. Um, I agree with that as long as authorial is spelled with a capital A. But if you mean only what the human author could actively conceive and design, I don't agree with this. And I think Genesis would be a good, Melchizedek would be a good example of that. When, uh, when Genesis 14 was written, it's hard to believe that the author would already know what Psalm 110 would say, and even less what Hebrews would be saying. Um, because of the nature of our God, because of the decree, the providence, um, because of the fact that he has ultimately designed, directed, and meant the whole process of revelation, um, there is no tension or problem between recognizing the human dimension of Scripture and the divine dimension of Scripture. Because even the human is part and parcel of God's mind and plan and sovereign providence. But saying that does not destroy the human dimensions. On the contrary, it establishes them as significant. Paul doesn't speak with the same voice as John or James or Peter. They have their own personalities. And you, you, and you see that in the text, in the way they speak about the Lord, the words they use, the, the way they, they express themselves, the, the medium they use, even in the, the genre and everything. They all have their own personality. And we must value that because this is the way God has revealed himself. This is the way God has decided and chosen to speak to us. So we can, we, we can value and recognize the uniqueness of the human vector or, uh, or instrument that God used um, without losing the divine unifying meaning, that the fact that it's all together that it is God's word. If we don't find the same thing in uh, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, it's not because they ultimately disagree with each other. It's because they all bring out different dimensions and aspects of God's revelation. And it's all together that we get the full, um, the full picture. So, uh, earlier I was asked about particular books or things like that. Um, there are many, many that I would recommend. Um, but um, I'll, I'll highlight here a few um, books or essays that are particularly significant for my own thinking. The first one would be by Cornelius Van Til. I don't know how many of you have heard of him. He is a Dutch-born American apologist, one of the founders of Westminster Theological Seminary. And um, he's written many things, but he has an absolutely fabulous essay called Nature and Scripture. And um, it's part of a collection of essays. Um, uh, you may be able to find it online. But um, that's the best treatment I found of how natural revelation and special revelation work together and how um, they are mutually dependent uh, so, in particular, as we, as we think about issues of language and how they play with inspiration and so on, it's very important for us to understand how natural revelation is divine revelation and how 
it is, at some level, the foundation upon which special revelation works. Because language is not a special revelatory feature. God does not reveal a special language. He doesn't teach us a special language so we can read his scriptures. He's using normal human language. In fact, languages. Not just one. Um, so that, that essay by Ventil is absolutely fabulous. I, I recommend to read it and read it again and read it again. Um, it's just uh, amazing. Um, another book I would recommend is by Verin Poitras. Um, uh, he's written a number of books, but um, two that I would recommend uh, would be, one would be symphonic theology. Symphonic theology, like a symphony. And the idea is that uh, uh, um, God's revelation has multiple aspects or facets, and therefore uh, we, we are to, to study it and develop our theology, uh, taking into account those different perspectives. Um, another book by him would be God-Centered Biblical Interpretation. And um, if anything I say to, to today contradicts what Poitras says in his book, uh, it's because I failed to express myself clearly. Um, And finally, I would also recommend uh, um, the first chapter of uh, Richard Gaffin's book, Resurrection and Redemption. Um, In the first chapter, he sets out to show how, um, uh, uh, as far as interpretation goes, we are in continuity with Paul. And he's showing how we are part of that same redemptive historical epoch, and and, and therefore our reading is of the same kind, but also the differences. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating uh, um, chapter. And uh, finally, last but not least, uh, Voss, Gerardus uh, Voss, usually known in the English world as G. Voss, um, Redemptive History and Biblical Interpretation. That's a collection of essays, but um, that's one place where he sets out um, um, how to read the Bible in a redemptive historical way. So not... Uh, Grammatical historical, not critical historical, but redemptive historical. Um, and so my approach is a continuation of Voss's uh, uh, approach. It's just an elaboration on it, a, a, um, drawing out some dimensions and aspects that he, he talks about but doesn't develop that, more, that much more. So let's look a bit quickly at some of the lessons we can learn from Genesis 14. First, we're dealing with a historical document. Now, what I've just said is, um, can mean many different things. It's a historical document. What do we mean by historical document? Well, it can mean a number of things, but uh, here I mean at least the following. First, uh, Genesis is a book that presents itself as telling us what happened, telling us, speaking about real events. It's historical in that sense. It's telling us the, the story of what happened. Now, it doesn't tell us everything that happened. Uh, it doesn't give us all the details and information that we may like to have. But uh, it does make claim to be speaking of things that actually happened. So in that sense, it's historical. It's not poetry. It's not um, uh, wisdom. It's historical. But it's also a book that was written many, many, many years ago. And in a different language, in a different culture, in a different setting, with different expectations. And so there's a distance at that level that we need to recognize. 
If we want to be able to read it and appropriate it, we need to be aware of that distance. We cannot read Genesis like we read the newspaper. Uh, but it's also historical because Genesis and all of the Bible uh, has been written over a certain time period. It's also the fruit of a historical process of revelation. We don't know exactly when, uh, when all the books were written, but we can, we can fairly say that uh, there's a good chance that the whole Bible was written over a period of about 1,500 years. There's a process, there's a historical process of revelation and inscripturation. That the, and the Bible is a fruit of this. The Bible has one bound book of 66 books. It's the result of that. So there are historical dynamics. There are historical dimensions. In that sense, the Bible is, an, is a historical artifact. Because not only is it an object of history, it's been produced by historical processes a long time ago, but it has impacted our own cultures, our own readings, our own societies. Um, so it is part of our history. It's even part of the history of this country, even though people don't believe in this Bible. So there's, there's a number of historical dimensions to when we talk to the, of the Bible. And related to that will be literary genres. I already mentioned that. It's a historical book. It's not a book of poetry. Though those those categories are sometimes a bit misleading. And remember that uh, the Bible itself was not originally divided in books by literary genre. Uh, our division between historical books, poetic, wisdom, prophetic, is a, is a modern concept. Uh, originally, it's only three partitions, and they're not based on this. Um, but still, there are different literary genres, though m many books will be a compound of different genres, because uh, like in Exodus, you'll find poetry suddenly. Um, or prophetic books will be written partly in poetry. In the case of Genesis 14, it's, it's ancient history. It's a history written like it was written thousands of years ago. And it's not just bare history. It's not just chronicle recording every little bit of fact that we can have. It's, uh, it's a history that has been interpreted. And in particular, has been interpreted by God himself. There's a pattern in the scriptures of God announcing what he will do doing it, and then explaining what is done. So God does not leave us with bare facts. He actually tells us what those facts mean. Some, and often, more than once, he will tell us what they mean, especially for the significant ones. In the case of Genesis, there are uh, narrative, narrative dynamics. Um, uh, there's a story being told. Um, uh, sometimes we think that if it's a story, it cannot be historical. But really, every history that is written is a story being told. That's the only way we can tell what happened, is by telling a story, by putting events in a certain order, uh, expecting that order to be significant, to be meaningful, or to be illuminating. So there are narrative dynamics. It's a storytelling. We, we, we need to learn to read stories as stories. And especially as Westerners, I think we're failing at that level. Our cultures are, are so, um, have been drained from stories and storytelling by, um, by the way we write information in newspapers, in scientific uh, um, documents, but also by the use of TV and things like that. We, we've lost the habit of hearing stories and how they function. Uh, that's also one reason why we, we read the Bible by sections, by segments. We, we take one number of verses from here and one... But we rarely read books as a whole to see how they, how they develop, how the story grows, how the characters are being presented 
and, and enlarged and developed and how they interact with one another and stuff like that. We, we lose that bigger picture, that bigger dynamic. Um, that would be true of this course in the epistles of Paul, for example. Their letters, they were meant to be read as, as a whole, at once. When you receive a letter from someone, you don't read a paragraph here and drop the letter and come back ten days later to read another paragraph. You read the whole letter. Um, but another a very important dimension of narrative is silence. A bit like in music. Now, I'm not a musician, so I speak a bit as, a, uh, as an outsider, but uh, what, 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 can make, what makes music great often is how you manage your silence. The silence between the notes. Um, it's the same in painting. It's not just the colors that help, but the darkness, the lack of colors. It's, it's the contrast that you create. And in the same way in a story, sometimes what is very important is actually what is not said, but is obvious from the story. And I think that's what Hebrews does with Melchizedek. It's drawing from things that are said, but also from things that are not said. Because in the context, those things that are not said are quite significant. Now, in other contexts, they may not be significant. But in that particular context, the fact that Melchizedek has no father or mother mentioned, no genealogy, is very significant because of the nature of the narrative around it. A canonical perspective. Where, where is the text? And what is it part of? It's part of a bigger story in the book of Genesis, but it's also part of the Pentateuch. How does it function in that bigger structure, literary structure? But uh, you can increase that by chunks. Uh, not just the Pentateuch, but then the whole story from, from Genesis to the exile. How does it function in this? What is its role? What, what is it contributing to that bigger story? How does the bigger story help us understand that event better? And in, like this morning, I tried to show how there are different circles around this, this event of Abraham meeting Melchizedek. Uh, how does the story of Melchizedek illuminate the story of the broader story of, Paul and Lot, uh, sorry, of Abraham and Lot? Uh, Lot is not involved in the verses we've read. But the bigger story within which Melchizedek is embedded is about Abraham and Lot. And bigger story than that would be Abraham and his inheritance and whether Lot is the proper heir or somebody else and how God will fulfill his promises. And you can expand that in a number of ways. But the fact that you put things together means that they, they influence each other in terms of their meaning. So, um, you have the history of redemption, beginning with Genesis 3.15. How does our particular text or particular event relate to the, the stated goal of God, which is to save mankind through a, uh, the seed of Eve? Um, we know, because we're Christians, we know that it all ends in Christ. So, how is that related to that goal in Genesis and how it's fulfilled in Christ? How does it fit between creation and new creation? Theology. Uh, this text tells us quite a bit about the kind of God we have, how he works, who he is. Now, some of it is puzzling. I, I will bring that. Um, but maybe that's part of who he is. Maybe there are things that, that are puzzling that are actually, actually are there because they actually reveal who God is. And, you know, God will say that his ways are not our ways. Things are a bit more subtle and sometimes a bit more complicated. Uh, rhetoric. The, the person who wrote Genesis realized, I mean, 3,000 and some years ago, you don't sit down to write a book about what happened just because you have nothing else to do or because you want to have a chair at a university. 
Okay? Um, the person is writing for, for a certain people and for a certain purpose. Uh, there's, there's a rhetoric. In other words, you're trying to make a point in what you're saying. You're trying to argue for something and or argue against something else. There's an quote-unquote ideology. Now, ideology is, is usually a negative term in our, in our language, but I, mean, I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean in, in the fact that there is some value system that he's trying to defend and, and, and develop. But also, this is a book that is written... Um, I said it's written for the people of God, not just to inform them or instruct them, but also to guide them in their life, to define their identity. I mean, if there's one thing that the Abraham narratives are there to do, is to define the identity of the people of God. I mean, if you, if you read that and you don't understand that the purpose of the author is to say you are a son or a daughter of Abraham, you've kind of missed the basic plot line. So part of it is defining our identity and therefore, through it, defining our way of life. Psalm 110 does a number of interesting things and uh, in some ways, Hebrews develops those even more. Um, For one thing, we must recognize that there's also the possibility of direct and supernatural revelation. And we may not be able to explain everything in simple human natural terms. And there are things that are said that... uh, we cannot explain how you got there, other than say, well, God said. Now, in Scripture, some of that is made explicit. There are times when it's said, the Lord says. You know, thus says the Lord. Well, it's pretty clear that's what God said. Um, but there are times when we have to say, well, we don't know how the author of such and such book com- could, could come to that conclusion. But, again, if we have a theology of inscripturation and of revelation that enables a sovereign God to actually control the processes... It's not a problem. We don't have to be able to explain everything in natural terms. But there's a danger here. It can be a cop-out. It can be an excuse, first, for not, for not doing the hard work of interpretation and study. Um, but it can also be a way of, of... We can put many things in there that shouldn't be there in, as direct revelation. As I've said, as I've just said, many of the, most of the time when there is this kind of direct supernatural revelation, it's actually indicated in the text. Now, there are canonical dynamics of collocating texts, as I've said earlier. When Psalm 110 looks at, or when you read Genesis 14 through the lens of 110, there's plenty of new questions, plenty of new ideas, plenty of new potential meaning there. And the author of Hebrews is drawing out some of them for us. So I'm not going to go further than that with this. But uh, uh, tradition history, how certain key themes and characters and events and places are picked up in later books and developed in one way or another. Um, so we can call that, I call that tradition history for, for, to have a short expression, uh, but basically it's a way of speaking of the way God's revelation grows and develops organically over the course of redemptive history. But uh, uh, Exodus, the Exodus is a typical example where uh, it's become the prototypical model for God's salvation of his people. And then it's many other stories are told using the same images or the same vocabulary or even identifying it with the Exodus itself, including uh, the work that Christ does. Language, translation, uh, um, the way language works. Um, I said this morning that there is a slight nuance in the way Psalm 110 is, uh, is expressed in the Masoretic text and the way it's expressed in, in the Septuagint. Now, in this text, it's a very slight nuance, but in some other texts, it's pretty significant. 
How do we understand that? Especially when the New Testament authors are using the Septuagint, the Greek text, rather than the Hebrew original. Sometimes it seems that the variation in, in meaning is actually what they're after. That seems to be what they want to say. Um, another aspect is that Psalm 110 is strongly messianic. It's all about Christ. And that seems to be one of the reasons why it's so important. When Christ says that all of Scripture is, is about him, I think he means it. That doesn't mean that every verse is a direct, immediate revelation of the person of Jesus as a, human, as a, as a divine human being. But it, what it says is that it's part of a bigger story that, that is all about him. And um, um, well, I, I, there's another point here I wanted to make. I'll, I'll skip it. Um, he, yeah. So I'm trying to highlight a number of aspects or dimensions of Scripture for us to see that, yes, history is very important and we should never relinquish the historical factuality of Scriptures. But we must recognize that Scripture is much more than that. Not less, not something else, but much more. And so we need to uh, allow Scripture to speak with its full voice. We need to pay attention, yes, to history, yes, to language. Now, language is more than grammar and syntax and uh, lexicography. Um, there are many other dimensions to language and linguistics that we can learn from, that we can benefit from. Um, um, Modern science has highlighted a number of those aspects. We don't have to just follow and adopt whatever they say. But um, they do see things that are there, and we may, we may, we, we may learn uh, from them. Um, you know, uh, we also must recognize that texts are a complex reality. I'm not talking just about the narrative in the text, but the text itself. The way a text is produced, the way a text acts in a community, the way it defines a community, the way it defines an identity, but also the way it's dynamic with the development of that community. Uh, and how we are, we are heirs of thousands of years of interaction with the text, for good or for ill. I think a lot of that is very good, but there might be other ways in which it's actually not that good. And we need to be aware of it. Another, uh, another dimension that I want to highlight is that the whole of Scripture is for us as Christians. But that means that all of Scripture will find its full meaning in Christ. And there's a level at which we connect with Scripture and its, and its uh, stories and its events and characters uh, immediately through Christ. There's a level at which what is true of Scripture is true of us, not immediately, but through Christ. So when I look at the story of Abraham, I do not connect with Abraham immediately as a man to a man, or even a believer and a believer. But I, I, I connect with him through Christ, through my union with Christ and how Abraham is a type of Christ or Abraham is, a, is a, an ancestor of Christ and how his experience as it is recorded is ultimately not about Abraham, not me certainly, but about Christ. Now there, there's, there's a lot uh, that could be said about that and I don't have any time so I'll just move on. But um, um, it's important to realize this Christocentric nature of Scripture but also of our own appropriation of Scripture. We tend to want to treat that book as if it is a letter that Jesus or God wrote this morning for me and posted in my mail. We want to remove the, the, uh, the distance of time, of culture, of language, and sometimes also of that Christological 
event, eschatological event of Christ that gives its meaning to Scripture. But we can't. The way we can appropriate Scriptures as Christians is only and exclusively through Christ. That is. 